Now, you put your hands up in front of your face, and you can block a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff happening that you can't see. Y'all indulge me just a little bit. Put your hands up in front of your face. Can't see anything, really, other than your hands. Hopefully, you washed your hands this morning. Otherwise, you're probably smelling breakfast. You can put them back down. Um, Look at the person next to you and just say, I can see you. And now do this. Say, now I can't see you. See, some of y'all are playing around. Some of y'all are, some of y'all are too cool to, to do this stuff in church. We're going to pray for y'all. It's okay to have fun in church, amen? Um, you see things, then you don't see things. I was praying a few weeks back. I guess it's been about a month now, a little over a month, for uh, an Elevate Leaders meeting that we had. And God kind of spoke to me and told me that it was just going to be a really powerful night of refreshing and renewal for our leadership team in the church and the people that were here. I'm just telling you, God poured his presence out in that meeting, and it was absolutely powerful. And God was speaking to us through that meeting, and I'm going to share a little bit of the stuff um, that God was laying on our hearts as a leadership team this morning, just so we're all on the same page as a body of believers, because we're family, right? So we all move in step as God leads us. But one of the things that, that God kind of dropped on my heart was the power of perspective and how perspective impacts the reality that we live in. And I was talking in that meeting about like the sun and how big the sun was and how big the sun was in relation to the earth. And it's huge. The sun is huge. And compared to the sun, the earth is like pathetically small. And I got a little video I'm going to show you. Go ahead and play that, guys. Like in relation to the sun... The earth is way, 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 way small. 1.3 million earths can fit inside the sun. At least that's what they estimate. I don't know how they figure that out because the sun is a long, long, long way away. Um, But they they figured out 1.3 million earths, the planet that we live on, can fit inside the sun. That's how big it is. That's huge. That's a lot of earths. That's a whole lot of Atlantas. That's a lot of traffic you can pack in there. You know what I'm saying? That's, it's huge. The sun takes up roughly, get this, 99.86% of the solid mass in our solar system, the sun. All the planets, all the asteroids, all the moons, Put it all together, the earth represents 99.86% of the mass. That means all the moons, all the planets, all the asteroids, all that stuff represents 0.14% of the mass. Not 1.4, 0.14, not even 1%, not even half of 1% of the solid mass. The sun is huge. It's huge. How many of y'all have ever stared at the sun? <laughs> a lot of people learn slow around here, huh? <laughs> you stare at the sun. How do you, you know, you grow up, you go up, you grow up broke and you, you play crazy games. Like uh, y'all played that game where you jump from furniture, piece of furniture, piece, you don't touch the floor because it's hot lava. Yeah, that translates into we were broke when we grew up and we were just making up fun stuff to do. Um, kids are broke, play games like we're going to stare at the sun. 
and you sit out there and you stare at the sun until your eyes explode and your head catches on fire. And that was fun growing up. And that's the way it was and we liked it. Right? So you stare at the sun and from here you don't have a real good perspective on how big the sun is. On earth where we are, we can put our hand up in front of our face and we can block out the sun. Our little bitty hand. Everybody hold up your hand. Isn't this amazing? Our little bitty hands, whether you got big hands or small hands, in comparison to the sun, little bitty hands can block out the sun. If you're in the right position, you can take a finger and squint just so and block out the sun with a finger. Isn't that amazing? And God spoke to me, and he was like, you know, so many times in our lives, we let small things block out big things that God wants to do. So many times in our life, because of our perspective and because of our focus, we get caught up in all of these things that we see, and we lose sight of what God wants to do in our lives. And we lose focus on what God is speaking to us as his, as his body of believers to do and what he's called us to do. We get distracted with jobs. That could be a finger. With family, that could be a finger. With drama, golly, I hate drama. I hate drama. But we focus on these things, and if we're not careful, the small stuff in our lives can block our vision of the sun. Maybe not the S-U-N son, but the S-O-N son. I just got real churchy on you guys real fast right there. But it blocks our vision. Our perspective is powerful. Amen? So I believe what God wants to do this morning is kind of remind us of how big he is and how small the stuff is that we're facing in life actually is how big the call is on our lives, and how small the distractions that pull us away actually are. How important what he's called us to do as a church is, and how insignificant the trivial things that catch up so many people in life actually are. I believe God wants to do something powerful in our lives today. You know, it, it's all about perspective. It's all about our, our reality and our revelation of who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. And the enemy likes to play little games and distract. We're not going to put up with that this morning, are we? Oh, uh, If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, so let's take this little hand, and let's put it in our pocket, because it's not going to mess with us this morning. All right? Jesus, when he was walking with his disciples, gave them the opportunity to have one of these revelations and one of these perspective changes that I'm talking about today. In Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus is, is leaving an area and going to a different area with his disciples. And he's walking with them, going to the, the region of Caesarea Philippi. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verse 13 through 18. If you want to take a moment to flip there, pull out your phones or your tablets and get there. We've got all the notes loaded on the YouVersion Bible app if you want to pull that out. It's right there, ready to go for you this morning as well. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Caesarea Philippi is extremely important to this passage of Scripture. He asked them, who do you say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, don't go any further. Stay right there. So Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? He's setting the disciples up. Jesus is the master of the setups. Like he's asking them a question to set them up for a bigger question. He goes, who do these people say that I am? And so they start rattling off the general public consensus of Jesus because people are still trying to figure out a way to put Jesus in a box because the world hadn't seen anything like this guy before he showed up. They hadn't seen anything like what this guy could do. They hadn't heard anything like the truth that this guy spoke. And so they're saying, yeah, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah. We're you're powerful. They know you're powerful. They think you're some kind of prophet, that there's something different about you that's separating you from everybody else. There's, there's obviously the hand of God on your life, and it's evident to everyone around you. So we know everybody's saying that. We know that. But, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 okay, that's what they say. But what about you? Who do you say I am? You know, if I was to ask everyone in here, who Jesus is to you, you might have a different answer than the person on the other end of the building. Because most people are going to say, yeah, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. And most people see him as that. But listen, he's not just that. He's not just that. I think so many times we like to put Jesus in the same kind of box that the people were trying to put Jesus in, where they say he's some kind of prophet or he's he represents maybe this kind of person come back to life. And, and, and we see Jesus as a supplier of things when we need him. When we need healing, we run to Jesus and we see Jesus as a healer. Or when we've gone and tried everything on our own and tried to blaze our own trail and make things work on our own and we're frustrated and we know it's not happening, then we see Jesus as a guy that we run back to and just, oh, God, I can't handle it anymore. Please bail me out. Like God's just the bonding company throwing out bail to get you out of your situations in life. You know, Some people view Jesus as just the supplier of things and needs when we need things. And that's not who he is. That's not who he is. Jesus asked this question to set up a point that he wants to drive home to his disciples in a setting that is more powerful than I think most people Understand, And we're going to dig into this this morning and take a look at it. If I was going to ask you like a serious question, who is Jesus to you today? Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? In your life, not, not what you're going to say in church, but if we were going to look at your life, who is Jesus to you? Is he just the person you run to when you need healing? Is he the person that you run to when you need provision? Is he the person that you run to when all hell is breaking loose in your life and you don't have anywhere else to turn? Is he the ultimate fix-it person? Is he, is he just someone that you just throw a tip at? Is he someone that you come and visit once a month? Who is he in your life? Because the answer to that is shaping the reality that you operate in in your walk with God. 
is creating the perspective which you operate your entire life on. And it's setting the limit of the spiritual potential and power in your life. Are you hearing me? Who is he to you? When Jesus asked this question of the disciples, he's, he's asking a huge question, and he's setting them up. And look what happens. They give, eh, people say this, people say that. And then Peter opens up his mouth, and finally he says something right. I just want to take a moment and say props to Peter because he jacked up a lot of stuff. This one he gets right. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Some translations say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus stops everything and he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. There's a change here. He goes from Simon to Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. People begin to throw out these general answers, and then Peter speaks up, and he drops the right answer. And he says, Now, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, That's right. That's exactly who I am. See, when you have a, a revelation of who Jesus is, and not just what he can do, it'll change you. And I think so many times we get used to what Jesus can do for us that we lose sight of who he is. We run to church when things are falling apart. That's not what he is. That's part of what he does. That's part of who he is. But that is not who he is. The Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know what Peter was saying? This is huge for him to even have the guts to say this because he's recognizing you are the Christ. You are the one that's been prophesied about. You are the fulfillment of all Scripture. You are here to fulfill the law. You are the sacrificial Lamb of God. You're the one that's going to take away the sins of the earth. And beyond all of that, when he says Christ, he is saying you are the anointed one, the supreme authority to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You are Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And when you have a revelation of that and God gets a hold of you and you see Jesus for who he is and not what he can do for you, it changes everything. It changes everything because now it's not a consumer relationship. Now it's about authority and position under the authority of the child of God, the Son of God, the Christ of God, the Messiah. Peter got it because God revealed it. When you had that revelation, it changes you. It changes your whole walk. It changes your whole walk. It changes your whole outlook. It changes your perspective. And suddenly the little things don't block out the big picture. Because now, once you recognize the authority that he is, you can put yourself 
in alignment underneath that authority. And this is where the majority of the church and the majority of Christians miss out on the potential that God has for their lives. Are you listening to me this morning? Because we don't recognize the position of authority and the flow of authority and how it's supposed to work. This, this is huge from Peter right now because not only is he recognizing the calling and the anointing on Jesus' life, but he's announcing the position of power and authority. And the way that he's saying it is, in a, is it's in a personal way. And what he's saying is, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he might as well be saying, you are my king. It's one thing to say, yeah, that guy's the president of the United States. It's another thing to say, that dude right there is my stinking president. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's one thing to say, yeah, that's my wife. She's cool. Uh-uh, Jack. That's my wife right there. That's my woman. That's my girl. You better back off off of that. Mm-mm. That's my girl. Peter's saying, you are my king, my authority, my Christ, my Savior. And it changes things. It changes things. Now, I want, to, I want to dig into this a little bit because I think... I think that if most Christians could get that in their spirit, we would see a different church. I think we'd see a different church. I think we'd operate a little different in our lives. And it's not just what Peter said, but it's also what Jesus says after it, and not just what he says, but where he says it. It's, it's powerful. This is a powerful block of Scripture. Do you guys want to dig into this a little bit this morning? Is it okay if we teach a little bit? Um, Jesus took the disciples to a region called Caesarea Philippi. If you will, go ahead and put Matthew 16 back up on the screen. I want to, I want to pick this apart just a little bit. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. These guys were, were in a region further south. Jesus marches them up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is key to this whole block of Scripture because Caesarea Philippi was a place that if you were a Jew, you didn't go to. It was a part of town that you don't go to. You don't go there. Why? Because it was steeped in pagan idolatry and in pagan religion. In fact, like for over a thousand years, some people say that when Jesus got there with his disciples, that the, the paganism, the idolatry that had been going on there had been going on there ritualistically for like somewhere between 1,000 and 1,300 years, consistent in this one area. So when the Canaanites came in, they would worship Baal in this area, a temple area set up where they would worship Baal. I want to show you a picture of Baal. This is the, the little fake god bell that these guys would worship. We got pictures to show them. Yeah, there we go. This is kind of a picture. And they would set up statues of this dude right here. Bell was a god of fertility. Bell was a god of crops. And he was also a god of rain and agriculture and all of that. This is why it was such a huge deal when Elijah back in the day walked up and said, uh, God's just going to shut down everything and destroy your agricultural system 
because their false god during that time was a god of agriculture. So God was just kind of going in the face of their false gods, what he was doing. These people, the Canaanites, worshipped Baal in this area specifically for up to about a thousand years, give or take. And they would do human sacrifices. People would offer up their children as sacrifices to this false god. Um, you could go into the temples there, not to be too crass, but you could walk in there and get a temple prostitute if you wanted to, and it was considered worship to Baal. So it was crazy. Uh, a lot of weird stuff going on. You imagine getting dressed, going to church, and seeing a prostitute at church, and then heading home. That's what they did to worship Baal. It was very different. Now, after that Canaanite period, things changed a little bit. I'm giving you some history here. Is this Okay. That things changed a little bit. When the Romans and the Grecians came in and took over the area, they set up new temples and implemented the worship of new gods in that area. Because the way things worked back in the day was that if you came in and you overtook an area, conquered a kingdom or conquered a government, you would set up the temples of your god on the site of the temples of the other people's gods that you conquered to show my God conquered your God. That's what they would do. So they came in, they took over. So instead of having a temple to Baal on this site, they set up a, a new temple, and they would worship the god Zeus and the god Pan. Now here's a picture of Zeus. Everybody knows Zeus, the Greek lightning god. Well, the way they worshipped him back in the day was pretty sick. Pretty sick. Mutilations, sacrifice, human sacrifice, crazy stuff. This is the god Pan, or the false god Pan, I should say. And he was a half-man, half-goat kind of entity that they created. And he was a god of fertility and crops also. And so they would do some really sick stuff in the temple, not to be... I'm, I'm, I'm looking through to make sure we don't have any sensitive ears. I don't think we do. Too bad. We do? Okay. They would do some crazy stuff with animals in this temple. I'll just leave it there. Um, they do some messed up stuff. So this had been going on for well over a thousand years in the area. This is where Jesus takes the disciples to. Now, I'm going to show you some pictures of the temples that they set up. This is the rendering of what the temple probably would have looked like in the day. In the side of the mountain, you'd have the temple for Zeus and the temple for Pan. The people would come in and do their thing, and they would leave. This is it's highly possible that this was the area specifically that Jesus went to. And the reason why is because of what he says. Now, if you look... To the left, you'll see in the rendering kind of a cave behind one of the temples over here. You see that? It would be my left. I guess it would be, yeah, I'm touching this way, so it would be your left too um, over here. Same thing. There's kind of a cave behind that. That cave, for over a 1,000 years, 1,200 years, whatever, 1,300 years, was known, are you ready for this, as the gates of hell. Because for over a thousand years, or better, 
people believed that that was a portal to the spiritual underworld. The Canaanites believed it when they worshipped Baal. The Grecians and the Romans believed it. This is the site itself today. All the fancy stuff is not there. You see the cave over on the far side of the screen. That cave was called the Gates of Hell. So wind would blow around in there, and you'd hear howling coming from it, and it was just attributed to a place of spiritual darkness. This is a spot that Jesus took the disciples to. A pagan region with false gods, with temples set up on top of temples of other false gods, with some sadistic, dark, sick stuff going on to worship them. And in the midst of all of this, Peter speaks up and he says, You're the Christ. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of gods. In this neighborhood, Peter drank some extra apple juice that morning, I guess. You know? So all this stuff was going on in this region. Now, this is powerful, guys. Are y'all still with me? I'm not losing you with this stuff yet. This is powerful. Because in order to get what I'm fixing to say later today, you've got to get this. I'm going to talk to you real quick about gates. I want to talk to you real quick about the word ecclesia. Actually, put Matthew 16 back up there, Shannon. Um, because this word ecclesia is huge. The concept of gates is huge too. Can you put Matthew 16 back up there? Okay. So when Jesus replies to Peter, after he says, who do you say I am? He says this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter. Now listen, the word Peter, Petros, is rock. Okay? But... Listen to me. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this, and the Catholics do. If you're a Catholic background, listen, I apologize. I can explain what I'm about to say to you in more detail later if you've got questions on it. But they see Peter as being the saint that Jesus establishes a church on, and Peter has this higher calling or anointing than any other. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, when Jesus is using the word Petrus, it actually means little rock. Okay? I tell you that you are now little rock... And then he makes a delineation here, and he says, on this rock, but the interpretation here is not just rock, it's big rock. So he looks to Peter, and he goes, you are the little rock. And then he says, on this big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. This word church here, though, is here for us. Okay? This is the word that we understand today. It, ecclesia is the name of the word. or Some people pronounce it ecclesia, but the right way to say it is ecclesia. If you will, Shannon, put gates and ecclesia up there. I want to talk to you about this for a second. We want to unpack this a little bit more, okay? Um, so Jesus goes to this spot, and he uses the word ecclesia, which is a crazy term that does not mean in that culture of the time there, it does not mean church. What it means is a group of people that are called out or set apart. 
the, 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 the way it would have been interpreted in the day is a governing body set apart. In fact, the Grecians, when, when, if you were part of the ecclesia in the Greek culture, you would have been part of the governing body set apart to govern in representation of the king. And the Roman uh, culture, it worked the same way too. So when Jesus is saying this, we get the interpretation of church today, but that's not what he was necessarily saying at the time. He was saying, I'm going to establish a called out, separated governmental body and establish it here. Now, gates, if you guys study a little bit about the Bible, you'll know this. Gates are a representation of what? Governmental power. For a region, for a city, most of, almost all of the business that was done was conducted at the gates of the city. The business exchange was there. The leaders of the, of the city would go there to discuss political matters and make decisions and all of this stuff. And the gates were huge. The gates were powerful. Gates were a symbol of government. Jesus goes to the gates of what? The gates of hell. A recognized place of authority and power of the, of the cult, of the underworld, the gates of hell itself. He goes to what is recognized for over a thousand years as the place of governmental authority for the enemy. Steps up to that place and says, Here is where I am going to establish my ecclesia. This is where I'm going to establish my government body, my separated, called out, governing body. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What Jesus is doing here is absolutely powerful because when he gets the answer from Peter that says who he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, you got it. And here on this site, I am going to establish my government on top of the enemy's government. I am going to put my church in authority over the enemy's operation in this world. And this, what Jesus is doing here is absolutely mind-blowing when you understand how things operate. He's prophetically fulfilling the scripture that says he will put the enemy under his foot because to establish a government on top of a government, to establish a church on top of a temple site means absolute defeat and destruction for the people that were conquered. Jesus is saying, I have overcome and here is where I will establish my governing body, the church. That's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. If I was a disciple, I would have went, say what? You go, huh? It's, it's unbelievable what's happening here. It's more than just establishing a church. He says, I'm going to establish my ecclesia, my governing body. 
See, we think church, we're going to go to church, hallelujah, 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 give something in the offering, maybe take communion every once in a while. Kids, did you enjoy being at the youth service? Yeah. Do y'all like being at the children's service? Yeah. We get in our mind that's how church is supposed to operate, but that's not it. Don't you understand? We are the church. We are the body. When Jesus established his called out, separated government body, that's us. That's us. An, an ecclesia, an, an ecclesia at the time was a governing body that represented the authority of the king, that implemented the laws and the decisions of the king that operated not just under, but with the authority of the king or the government. Jesus is establishing something powerful here. Something powerful here. Now listen, you are not just a sinner saved by the skin of your teeth. That might be true about you in your past, but if you are a child of God, if you are part of his body, you are part of his governing body on this earth. And I want to tell you that everything on, on this earth, just like it's under the feet of Jesus it's under your feet, too, because you walk with the authority that he established. Everything that the enemy throws at you, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Because he is defeated and under the authority, crushed under the established government of Jesus. What he's doing here is absolutely mind-blowing if you get it in your spirit. Because I don't know how many times I hear Christians talk about, well, the devil's just attacking me. The devil's just beating me up. The devil's just hitting my finances right now. The devil's in my family right now. The devil's just causing all kinds of trouble in my life. Why are you letting somebody that has no authority over you punk you and bully you and push you around like you can't do something about it? Because in Christ, you operate with that authority that he gives to you. Every situation in life as a child of God, you have the authority of the name of Jesus that causes you to rise above it. That's why the word says that we're above only and not beneath the head and not the tail. While we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Man, if you can't say amen to that, something's wrong in your heart. I want you to see this. Gates are also powerfully symbolic here, too. Because, listen, have you guys ever been attacked by a gate? Like, have you ever just been walking down the road and here comes a gate and, and, and runs you down? Only that, unless you were on acid or something, that probably, that probably didn't happen. Gates are defensive structures. Gates are defensive structures. Not only is Jesus establishing his government and his authority on top of the, the government and authority of the enemy, but he's saying the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, we, we look at that and we don't think about it the right way. Listen, that's not like, that's not like Satan's attacking and saying, no, 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 no. Gates are defensive structures. That means that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the flood of attack that we're going to hit it with. 
That's what he's saying here. Listen, when the enemy's messing with your family, he's trespassing. When the enemy messes with your finances, he's trespassing. When he messes with your mind, he's trespassing. We're supposed to be on the offensive, not on the defensive. And I see so many Christians waste so much of their life and so much of their potential sitting back and letting the enemy attack and attack and attack and beat you down and get you distracted. We are the overcomers. He's the one on the run. And Jesus said there's nothing that he can do to put up against it can withstand the power of our attack on him. Are you getting this? This is absolutely powerful. This is mind-blowing when you stop and think about what Jesus is doing. It's absolutely it's mind-blowing. Why do you say all this, Pastor Josh? I, I unpacked all of this because I want you to understand. This is what I believe in my spirit, that today is a day of next level in our church and a day of next level in your walk with God. This is what I believe. I believe that today is a day where a lot of us are going to stop doing this and start doing this. And maybe take that hand that had been distracting us for so long and use it to pick up a sword and get busy doing what God has called us to do. We are the ecclesia. That's a fancy word. We are the governing body of God. Under the authority of Jesus. He is our king. When, when he is our king and we fall in alignment under that authority and operate in his calling and in his authority to do his will. Because it's not about us. If I'm representing the king, I'm going to do what the king has told me to do. Not what I want to do. Not what I think is a better idea. I'm going to get the orders from the king and I'm going to implement it into real world. That's what's going to happen. And when we, as a body of believers, get to a place where we have that revelation and realize this is not a consumer thing. This is about us. You want to know what this is really all about? Global domination for the kingdom of God. You realize that as representatives of the kingdom of God, everywhere we step is under our authority because it's under the authority of Jesus. Local laws still apply. I'll give that, okay? Uh, don't go speeding and say, no, 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 cop. You don't understand. I'm an ecclesia. He's going to go, yeah, okay. Uh, don't work like that. Common sense there. But in spiritual matters, you do understand what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying here. And I hope this changes some of us today. Listen, God did not save you to leave you defeated. You don't just fight for something. You fight with victory over every obstacle that you face in life. Now, that's awesome right there. That's awesome right there. Why, why is that important? It, it's very important because God is beginning to speak to us as a church on a different level. Um, I want to share some of, and when, when I say word, if, if you're not you know, of a church background, what I'm saying is, when, when a person has a word for somebody or a word from the Lord, that means that they feel strongly impressed that God has spoken to them and given them something to say to an individual or a larger corporate body. It's patterned in Scripture. It's how the New Testament church operates. We spend a lot of time praying uh, 
as a leadership team at the last Elevate session. And, and I just kind of shut everything down. And I said, okay, we've been praying a little bit. We've been in the presence of God. I want us to shut everything down and just take some time to hear from God and ask him to speak to us about what he wants to see happen in our church. That's a pretty good thing to do, by the way, to have your leadership team saying, God, what do you want us to do? And what happened was powerful. We prayed and we got quiet and we sat in the presence of God and let him speak to us. And, and what I'm about to read to you is, um, it, this came from, I think it was like nine or ten individuals that night just kind of sharing what they felt God put on their heart. But when I read this, I want you to see, listen, this is it's all like in line and almost like hand in hand linked together. It's just awesome. I want to read this to you. I feel as a pastor, okay, and this is my position as a pastor of the church to judge this. I really feel like this is for us as a church body. I'm going to share some other things to you uh, in just a little bit that are going to blow you away. Then we're going to pray. Is that cool? We're going to pray. Um, This is the word that came to about nine different people at different times at Elevate the other night. All right, everybody do this. Close your eyes. Just take a deep breath. We've covered a ton of ground this morning. I don't want you to be distracted. I want you to hear this as if it was just me speaking to you in a room by yourself. And I want you to hear how this applies to you personally. Because when God gives a corporate word, it applies to each of us individually. Turn loose of hindrances and distractions. And pursue God. Changes are coming. Don't fear the change. Don't let personal feelings dictate how you respond to the change that God is bringing in your life. Draw close to Him. He's calling you deeper into prayer. Get out of your own way. Then He can do what He wants to do in your life. He makes us uncomfortable to stir us up. The challenges and trials make us stronger. If we get out of the way and allow him to do what he wants to do, he is molding and shaping and preparing. Growth and change are coming. Be still and know that he is God. Don't be anxious. Let his spirit bear witness with your spirit. Because the time is short and the privileges are waning. Share your faith now. Do not grow weary. I have not forgotten what I have spoken. I will not let you slip from my eye. Stand firm and do the work I have called you to do. I have positioned you where I want you. I have pruned and groomed you to prepare you to, to bear much fruit. The harvest is coming. The season of growth is near. Do not grow weary. Do not become complacent. I am bringing a harvest of souls. Prepare. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. It all flows hand in hand. I thought that was powerful. 
what nobody knew was that the week before, I was at uh, a ministry conference in Dallas, Texas, and we had a serious time of prayer there, and it was powerful. Pastors were praying for pastors, and we got in groups, and we were praying for one another, and um, a similar thing happened where there were a group of people praying and just sharing what God had laid on their heart, and they spoke a lot of personal stuff over, over Pastor Kelly and myself, and it it was legit. It lined up. Uh, and then they said this, and I want to share with you now the word that was given in Dallas, Texas, by people from another church about a week before all of our leaders prayed and felt like what God was speaking to us. Remember what I've spoken over you in the past. I've spoken things over you that are still to come, things that you've heard years ago. Have faith in your Father. I will give you the promises that I have for you. It's my heart's desire. I want to take your church deeper. Be filled with my spirit. Go deeper. I'm going to have a beacon of grace in the town of Douglasville. The town is in despair, but not for long. I am bringing change from within you this church, to this community from the inside out. That's just absolutely powerful to me. I don't know if it hits you like it hits me. It's absolutely powerful. What does that tell you? That tells me that God has a plan for this church. God has always had a plan for this church. God has positioned us to make an impact in this community. This is what I know, and this is what I feel like God was laying on my heart for today is that that is not going to happen as long as we choose to do this. Because he can't be who he needs to be in our lives while we're doing this. And if he can't be who he needs to be in our personal lives, there's no way he can be who he needs to be in our church. And if he can't be who he needs to be in our church... This is what hits me. Everybody looking at me? We're fixing to close, but I want you to look at me. Because if we can't be who God has called us to be as a church, what does that mean for those people out there? What does that mean? What does that mean? No preaching, no fancy stuff, just... Me talking. What, what does that mean? If we don't line ourselves up under the authority of Jesus and do what he's called us to do individually and do what he's called us to do as a church, what does that mean? That means countless, countless people will never be reached because we were supposed to reach them. That means that we, for us, we will never experience the level of relationship that God just desires to have with us because we are literally blocking it out because of the little stuff and the hindrances and distractions and missing out the big picture of who we are, the authority that we walk in, 
the authority that the enemy doesn't have, and what hangs in the balance. I don't know about you, but for me personally, I'm going to commit today. I'm going to commit today to take a next step in my walk with God. And I'm going to take a step today to make sure that as a pastor, I don't have any of this going on in my life or in my heart so that I can fall under complete alignment with what I know God is calling us to do and what God is calling me to do. And what I want to do is this. I want to ask you as a church to come along with me. Let's set aside all the distractions. Let's set aside all the hindrances. Let's set aside all the obstacles. And let's put ourselves under proper alignment with the authority of Jesus and begin to operate under his authority and with his authority in our lives and begin to take new ground in this community and begin to take new ground in our personal lives and begin to make an impact like we've never done before as a body of believers. How many of you would say, Pastor, I'll do that with you today?